Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, we're going to look at the different aspects of business today, of work, of doing something that you love, of filling that big block of time each week with something that's more than just a paycheck. Did a radio interview early this morning. We're talking again about the recession. You know, I get a little tired of talking about that sometimes because uh, for those of us who are just, you know, on the streets out here doing something, I mean, what does that mean? What is it? You know, the recession, when as soon as that word comes up, it's like there's this great big cloud that somehow hangs over us and prevents us from doing anything meaningful. And thus, we just have to wait until things get better. Well, that's a terrible position to take. And I'm seeing people who during this recession, downturn in the economy, whatever you want to call it, are just knocking it out of the park because they just simply didn't get caught up in that henny penny, the sky is falling kind of mentality. Now, I'm gonna, not going to diminish the importance, the impact that it's had on some of us and certainly on me as well. But there are so many new opportunities around every corner. we got to be careful about just seeing dark clouds where there really is sunshine trying to peek through. Well, got a lot of questions this week. If you're a new listener, welcome in. Each week, we spend 48 minutes here going through real-life questions. These are not just theoretical things that I dream up. These are real-life questions that you, the listeners, ask. And you can shoot in a question by just going to the podcast link at 48days.com. You'll see a little space there to ask your question. Or you can just shoot an email directly to askdan at 48days.com. I value your questions, value being a part of this community, and as we kind of Break these things open together. Hopefully it helps all of us rise to higher levels of success. Here's some of the things we're going to be talking about today. Have you ever considered doing a joint event with John Eldridge? How can I regain my self-confidence in my job? No self-confidence, apathetic, lazy. Dan, when I graduated in 2009, I took a job with the federal government due to a lack of options. Unfortunately, the federal government has lived up to most of its stereotypes. Dan, you seem to have an interest in helping people who are coming out of prison get back into life and grow and prosper. Yes, I do. And yes, there are ways to do that. How about this one, Dan? How do you interpret Proverbs 1420? Now that verse says the poor is hated even of his neighbor, but the rich hath many friends. Well, we'll touch on that. You'll probably want to do some more research after I give you my um, short opinion on that. And uh, someone says, I'm in a secure government position, but I desire entrepreneurship. How do you move into entrepreneurship when you've never seen it modeled, never had it taught in your family? Well, we can talk about that as well. Got some events coming up here. This is now June when I'm talking. We Our next event is in August. And I think the, the next Right to the Bank event is just about sold out. Um, that's one where we 
take people and uh, just help you nurture your ideas about getting those in the book. Got some good book questions today here that I want to address as well. But anyway, we'd love to meet you here at the Right to the Bank event. If you're interested in turning your income or your your income into writing, yeah, yeah. <laughs> interested in turning your writing into income, join us for the Right to the Bank event. Just click on the live events under 48days.com or on 48days.net, and you'll see the things we've got coming up. Well, here's my quotation for the day, and and since I kind of brought this to mind a few days ago. It seems like it's appropriate in so many different situations. I'm sure I'll address it again as we go through some of the questions today, but it comes from Vince Lombardi who said, winning is a habit. Unfortunately, so is losing. Well, uh, Ashley, my daughter, forwarded me a question this week from a lady who felt like I had just poured salt in the wound and some advice I tried to give her about moving forward and that I didn't understand, you know, all the different things that she's had go wrong and the people who don't like her and the companies that have mistreated her and the bad job she's had and all these things. And I, I sent Ashley back that quotation, just that alone. Winning is a habit, unfortunately, so is losing. Now, Ashley knows me well enough to know that I didn't intend for her to send that in to somebody that sounds really harsh and blunt and frank and to the point. But, you know, sometimes we just got to cut through all the maze of excuses and circumstances and just say, you know what? People learn how to win and they also learn how to lose. We get caught in those things as habits. So if you want to change that, what are you going to do? Break the cycle. What are you going to do to build a new habit? I used to have a health and fitness center and we always told people that it takes 21 days to create a new habit, whether that's good or bad. 21 days. You do something repeatedly for 21 days, it begins to become a habit. So if you want to break in negative habits, stop doing it for 21 days. If you want to build in a new habit, start doing that for 21 days. It starts to take root and grow in who you are and what you're all about. Well, Derek says, I've been reading a lot of marketing books lately, such as Seth Godin, Jay Levinson. I love small businesses, especially small businesses in my hometown of Mesquite, Texas. I would love to start a business offering marketing services to these small local companies, utilizing what I am learning from the books. My question is, could this be a profitable business? And how do I set up a performance-based compensation on something like this? Thanks for all you do. Look forward to hearing from you. Well, how do you... Is it a good business to consult with small businesses? Sure, absolutely. Marketing services for small businesses. I mean, that's a changing target. The things that worked effectively 10 years ago or even five years ago or three years ago aren't as effective today. I talked to a gentleman this morning who is a marketing consultant to auto dealers, to the principals, to the auto dealers themselves. And one of the things that he's helping them understand is the new way of marketing. I mean, look at some of the commercials that really get your attention. Some of those were created by somebody with a flip camera that they put up on YouTube. The days of the $750,000 investment to produce a 30-second commercial spot are pretty much over. Now, that's still being done by some companies, unfortunately. But, you know, to do those kind of ads to run ads on TV as a car dealer and run the big full page ads in the newspaper on Sunday. 
Boy, those are pretty antiquated methods. So if you can teach people how to market in today's environment, sure, that's that's marketable. How to make it compensation-based, I mean, that's pretty interesting. I mean, there are people like Jay Abraham out there who's an old-time marketing guru, and he made millions by doing results-based consulting in marketing. But what do you do? It come into a company and just create a benchmark. Say, okay, for the last... Six months, you know, you've averaged $50,000 a month in income. We'll use that as a benchmark. I'm going to work with you, and then I'm going to take 10% of the increase over the next 18 months. So the next month, your revenue is at $60,000. He takes 10% of that increase. In that case, that'd be $1,000 that he gets. Well, there are companies where the increase was just astronomical and he made a whole lot of money doing that. Yeah, you can do that. I mean, my buddy Chuck Bowen from San Antonio, Texas, is one of our 48 Days coaches, and he's done that. He's taken an equity position in some of the companies that he's worked with. He works with Saddleback Leather as an example, one of the companies that he's worked with now for four or five years and has taken them from very mediocre revenue to millions and millions of dollars. Well, he shares in the uptick. He shares in the increased revenue rather than just being paid as a consultant. So yeah, you can do that. Now you better know what you're doing. You better have a business where there really is an upside potential where you believe in it, but coming in offering to do your work where it's based only on the increase, certainly conveys a clear message to the owner that uh, you're willing to do that. I mean, if somebody came to me and said, uh, gee, you don't need to pay me anything. I'm going to do marketing things. I'm going to go out and sell the 48 day seminar or something like that. And all you do is pay me just commission. Sure. Hey, go for it. We'll give you that opportunity. So it's not difficult to get the opportunities. You have to structure it though. So you know, at the end of the day that it makes sense for you business wise. Well, David says there seems to be a lot of similarity between the 48 days message and the message from Ransom Heart Ministries. Have you ever considered doing a joint event with John Eldridge? Um, There's certainly a lot of similarity. There are groups on ransomedheart.net. There's John's social networking site where the same people have the same group on 48days.net. And yeah, certainly John's message is one about figuring out who you are. I mean, his big book that probably most of you are familiar with was Wild at Heart. He's got a more recent book. We were looking at it this morning in my guy's group, but it's called Fathered by God, Learning What Your Dad Could Never Teach You. I mean, John's a great guy. You know, have I looked at doing events? No, I really haven't. Um, I, I don't look to do a, a whole lot of events, period. We do a few here, but again, with my primary commitment being to writing and coaching, I'm not looking to spend a lot of time on the road, but I don't be a great idea. Golly, if John would ask me, yeah, I'm certain, sure I would consider it. Haven't gotten that phone call yet. Dan, this comes from Rob. In your book, you mentioned that sometimes it takes a drastic change. I think I fit into that category because I hate my job, yet I continue to come back because I must have some invisible chains on me. I keep returning. I have websites up that need to be tweaked more for my business ideas, but I really think I need a drastic change. I would like to relocate to a cheaper area and quit my job. What do you think? And then Rob adds, well, I do have a wife and three kids, so that is more likely the reason why I keep returning. Well, I think it's healthy to look at it in the way that you're describing, Rob. If you don't like your job, you know, you say you hate your job, but you feel like there's some invisible change. My gosh, you know, what is that? I I wrote a blog, 
golly, some time ago that I titled um, Abused Wife Syndrome. And I said, no, this is not really about abused wives. But I had a client that used that phrase in describing him repeatedly returning to, in his case, it was being a dentist. He kept coming back to that, even though he kept trying to get out because he hated it with every fiber of his being, but he kept coming back because at least he knew he could do that, make significant income. And every time he left, he seemed to end up broke, which uh, in fact he, he did and filed bankruptcy the last time he left. In his mind, it just seemed like there was a strikingly similar pattern. He would break away for something more rewarding, experience a challenge or setback. Then he'd return to the work he despised, yet knew that's where he could make the most predictable income. Now, you know, do you do your work only because of the paycheck you get? Do you long to leave for something more enjoyable? Have you tried another path only to return what's more familiar? Now, unfortunately, we do see that pattern in wives and dogs and children who often get trapped in patterns of going back to negative and even abusive situations. Now, I know that the emotions and self-esteem issues there can be complicated and confusing. However, you know, when we're talking about those kind of things, the stakes are dramatically higher than they are with a job. A job should not be the definition of who you are, or what you are. You know, you ought to be able to leave today and not change the overall purpose or direction of your life. You know, your calling is a much larger concept than what you do daily to create income. You don't need a divorce to walk away from your job into a more fulfilling and rewarding job. So if you need a dramatic change, Rob, yeah, I like dramatic change. I mean, I've done that multiple times myself where we just packed up and moved and I knew I could figure things out and we moved areas where we thought we would enjoy living and uh, we have. But uh, yeah, look at this as a life plan. Don't let your job be at the central focus of what your life is all about. Look at where you would like to live. Look at the relationships you'd like to develop, what you'd like to do in terms of personal development. What would you like to accomplish financially? Those things ought to be predictors then of what you do work-wise. And if that allows you or even requires you to move somewhere else, absolutely. Man, get a moving van today. Be looking at some new options. Matt says, Dan, I thought I'd share a cool, creative way to take a boring resume to the next level. I've created a video resume explaining my credentials, posted it to my website. You can view it here. And I did go and look at Matt's uh, website, his resume. He says, I'd be grateful if you took a look and shared it with anyone who might find it interesting or inspiring. I love to do video work. Would like to hear any ideas you might have on how I could market this as a service. Well, Matt, let me just give you a couple of pointers. I went to your website and looked at your video resume there. You talk a lot about your history, but you talk very little about what value you bring to a new company. I'd sure like to see more focus on what value you would bring to a company. I mean, you want your resume to be a sales brochure, not just a history lesson or a historical overview of what you've done. I would also caution you and everyone else about a video resume. I had a friend who started a business here in Nashville, put everything that he had into it. It made a lot of money in the in medical field and he put all his money into a video resume business and lost every penny. For one thing, I think he was a little too early in terms of the technology. But secondly, I really never was very excited about the concept, period. 
think about a video resume. For one thing, to create one, it requires a whole lot more work and effort. You have to go somewhere, and if you're going to do it in that way. But my real problem with the video resume is that it tells people too much about you. They hear your voice. If they don't like your voice, boom, you aren't going to be considered as a candidate. They see you. If they don't like the way you combed your hair, you're done. I mean, it gives them too much information. Keep in mind what you want a resume to do. You want it to whet the appetite of somebody so that they want to see you and meet you personally. That's what you want it to do. So if you give them all the information, they see you, they hear you, they know all about you, they're going to make a decision. And that has a high potential of working against you, not for you. Now, I know you can make a case for the other thing. And in today's technology, yeah, lots of people do that. And they may even want to do a video conference as part of the interview. But, but again, I say, you know, whet their appetite so you get an opportunity then to get closer to them. But to hit them with a video resume right on the front end, I think, has more potential to work against you than for you. This comes from Cliff. Says, Dan, I'm hooked on your 48 Days podcast. Thank you so much for your inspiration. Uh, my question is, so many of my coworkers exhibit great self-confidence. My self-confidence meter barely registers. How can I regain my self-confidence in my job? No self-confidence is like standing in quicksand. No self-confidence makes me apathetic and lazy. But these symptoms are not the real me. Help. Well, Cliff, fortunately, in identifying your challenge as clearly as you have, you're 50% there in terms of the solution. I mean, you really, I mean, that's a big part, just identifying where you are. And the fact that you identify this as an issue for you, rather than having somebody else have to point it out to you, lets me know you're really a prime candidate. You're sitting right there, ready to just do a couple little things and move back into self-confidence. And you can do that. I mean, self-confidence is not something that either you have it or you don't. No, you can learn how to do it. Now, let me tell you a couple books that will really help you. They're very simple. They're old classics. They aren't new. They aren't complicated. They're just solid principles. One, The Magic of Thinking Big, David Schwartz. Now, that book had a dramatic impact on me years ago, as it has had a lot of other people. I mean, if you think about uh, Lou Holtz, the, the great football coach, somebody gave him that book when he was about 40 years old. He was unemployed as a high school football coach, just his career just bottomed. He was just doing nothing and really unsuccessful in multiple areas of his life. He read The Magic of Thinking Big. He sat down and made a list. I think it was of a hundred, a hundred things that he wanted to do before he died. And last I heard, he had accomplished like 98 of those, including, you know, jumping out of an airplane, blah, blah, blah. Of course, you know, we recognize Lou Holtz as the great coach of Notre Dame. He's done all kinds of things. He's a, a desired, sought-after speaker, author, and lots of other things. The Magic of Thinking Big. Read that book. It's one of those that I reread at least once a year. I go back to that. And I'm going to give you some principles from that as well. But the other book is See You at the Top by Zig Ziglar. See You at the Top. You can't read that and have it sink in at all without having it boost your self-esteem. Not in a phony, artificial, I am the greatest kind of way, but just by doing simple things. But here's some of the things that you'll find in The Magic of Thinking Big. They're very simple, but I want you to think about what does this do for your self-confidence? Okay, here are the, some of the things that, that David Schwartz 
talks about. Be a front seater. <laughs> now, you know, in doing workshops and seminars, I'm always very observant of where people sit. When people come in and they immediately go to the back and sit there, what does that tell you about, you know, their desire to not be too conspicuous? They don't want to be put on the spot. They don't want to have to really offer anything. You know, they're just kind of sticking a toe in the water. Be a front seater. You're sitting up front builds confidence. It really does. I mean, you walk in, you're going to pay more attention. You're going to let people know, hey, you're here to learn something. So just in any in any situation you can come up with, be a front seater. Number two, practice making eye contact. I mean, that's a biggie. When we interview people, eye contact tells us a whole lot about somebody's self-confidence. And frankly, if somebody is not giving you good eye t- contact, it implies very clearly low self confidence, but it implies weakness. This person is not somebody who's going to bring new ideas to the table. This person is probably going to be somebody who just is going to do the minimum to maintain their job and get their paycheck. That's not the message you want to share. Make great eye contact. You know, we talk about firm handshake, good eye contact. I mean, those things tell people a lot about your self-confidence. And even if you are struggling with low self-esteem, Direct eye contact is one of those things that will turn the corner for you and it'll actually help you increase your self-confidence. Number three, walk 25% faster. Now, these are right out of the old book, David Schwartz, The Magic of Thinking Big, but they're principles that I love to experiment with. Walk 25% faster. You cannot walk fast and feel like you're defeated, discouraged, depressed, low self-esteem. It just it just won't happen. Another one, practice speaking up. You know, rather than just staying quiet, you know, offer your opinion. Practice speaking up. And number five, smile big. Now, again, there's just something about our physiology. You cannot smile big and feel defeated at the same time. A big smile just gives you confidence. And a smile is going to beat out fear. It's going to roll away worry. Defeats uh, discouragement and depression, smile big. I mean, I, those are the kind of things you can, you can do, you can start doing immediately and they really will help you move up the ladder in your self-confidence. Good question. I uh, admire you for being open about that, but being open and uh, teachable, you can move up your self-confidence very, very quickly. Wes says, I'm 48 years old and stuck in a low-paying government job that leads to nowhere. I'm frustrated because I need a higher-paying job to support my family, but I don't really know what I'm qualified for. And if those jobs are out there, can you point me in the right direction? Yes. Number one, Wes, don't believe that you are stuck. You're not stuck. There are opportunities out there. There are lots of other people that are finding new things to do, new ways to move ahead, make more money. All those kind of things are very possible. So don't believe that you're stuck. You're only stuck in that you choose to continue going back to this job day after day. Now, that's okay as a starting point, but you must know what you're qualified for. What unique value do you bring to the table? Don't ever expect a prospective employer to pull out of you, you know, what your great skills are and your assets and your value and contributions. You need to be able to talk about those. And if it seems like that's being egocentric or bragging, then so be it. 
I mean, when you're looking for an opportunity, you need to pull out all the stops. You need to be your biggest cheerleader. Trust me, you are your biggest cheerleader. Nobody's going to root more for you or care more about where you're going to end up than you. So you need to be that cheerleader. So you need to be crystal clear about what it is you do well. Develop your elevator speech. I talk about that a lot. You ought to be able to, in you know, 30 seconds, describe what is unique about you, not just, gee, I'm a social worker or I'm a dentist. You know, no, say, you know, I help people with low self-esteem transform their, transform their smile so that it gives them confidence, energy, and boldness. Wow, that's a lot different than saying, I'm just another dentist. So work on an elevator speech so it really conveys, what do you bring to the table? that nobody else does. Why would somebody want to have you on your team, on their team? So do that and you'll get over the idea of feeling stuck. Plus, you can do a job search while you are where you are. You don't need to burn any bridges. Do a job search. Get out here in the market. You'll find out what your value is, how marketable your skills are. But you need to do a really good, straightforward job search. You know, Go through the principles I have laid out in 48 Days to the Work You Love and see if those can't help you do a job search with excellence. Ethan says, my proposed plan would be to acquire a clientele of young aspiring athletes that would be in groups of five that I would train once a week for two hours a day. Now, this is a business idea Ethan has, and just kind of follow me through here. This would be a total of 50 students, each of which would come only once a week for two hours. If I could charge $30 a student per hour and did this Monday through Friday from 3.30 to 5.30 and then another group from 6 to 8 o'clock, that would generate a substantial income on its own. Plus, I could have sessions on weekends and possibly others during school hours. Okay, do you think this business plan is plausible? What would, would this be a marketable business? Would I need certain degrees related to the physical and athletic fields to be able to do this? What are your overall thoughts? Yeah, I think, I, I think this is a pipe dream, Ethan. I mean, I, I think this would be amazing. But I think he, I would um, perhaps um, Michael Jordan could do this. Um, but I don't think that unless you have a whole lot of credentials to put you in this position that this is going to be workable. Now think about it. You're talking about 50 students that you would have paying you a hundred dollars a week. All right. So that's $400 a month. Now for a mom and dad, I mean, I've had kids in all kinds of programs to commit to $400 a month, man, I would want them to be rubbing shoulders. Yeah. With somebody who is at absolute top of their game. And that's a major, major commitment you're, you're going to have to be really clear on how what you're going to do, how your training has that much unique value. And for me to commit $400 a month for my kid to be in a program once a week for two hours, not even by himself, not getting individual training, but in a group, I don't think that's a, I don't think it's a sellable model. I think it's a really big commitment for parents to, to make. Now there's no risk in trying. I mean, you can try what you're doing. I mean, if you look like the incredible Hulk and you're going to teach kids how to jump higher and run faster and whatever, you know, you have something where you really are recognized as an expert in this area. I mean, you can do this. You can start putting together a group, but to get to the level that you're talking about, I mean, think about just doing the math here. If you had 50 students coming once a week for two hours, $30 a student hour, that would be, that's $3,000 a week. 
That's three grand a week or $150,000 a year. Yeah, there's a whole lot of people that would like to do this who really do have a platform already and have the credentials. But, you know, this is going to take massive marketing to get and keep 50 students. You need to be speaking, contacting, getting referrals. And, yeah, I think this is a really, really big goal to have. Now, the question then becomes one, would you want to do this if you could do half of what you proposed here or 25% of what you proposed? I mean, if that's true, if you still say yes, then go ahead and do it. If you say, nope, I want to do this, or I'm going to make 3000 bucks a week, $12,000 a month, or I don't want to do it at all, then I say find something else because I don't think you can do this. But if you say, well, I want to go in this direction anyway, then start it even with lower goals in mind. You know, I hesitate in a way to respond as I did because, geez, I hate to ever you know, burst somebody's balloon about big thinking. I want people to think big, but then you've got to back it up with a plan. And when you start doing the math on that, okay, how much time you'd have to have in FaceTime, how much time you have to spend in marketing, how much time you have to spend, you know, maybe reviewing films, planning what you're going to do in upcoming programs and all that. I mean, it, it's just, it's pretty overwhelming. I don't really think that's going to work. And I do have to be honest. John says, from Raleigh says, thanks for your encouraging words each week. They keep help me keep focused, push toward a hopeful future. I have an idea about teaching seminars, to, perhaps to corporate offices on relationship crafting. I'd focus on integrity, listening, seasoning the speech, working as a team, et cetera. Do you think this could be workable? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as companies have downsized, one of the first things that goes are their in-house trainers because they realize the expertise of a trainer is not going to be utilized 40 hours a week. So they may need excellent training five hours a month or three hours a week or something like that. So when I was doing corporate training on leadership development, I was doing exactly what you're talking about, relationships, integrity, listening, uh, working as a team, communication, those kind of things. That's what I was doing. So I would go in, I would use the DISC profile as one component. I would limit the groups to 20, do a three-hour workshop and charge $3,500 for that, or do two workshops and meet with management for lunch for $8,000 a day. And that was back in the, boy, that was back in the mid-90s, I guess, I was doing that. So it's been some time ago, but sure, that, that's very workable. Just uh, put together your plan, or you can even get material that is done by other companies. I mean, you can get the Stephen Covey material or the Tony Robbins material and go in and teach with already developed, perfected materials where you're just simply the facilitator. I did that years and years ago with a program called Adventures and Attitudes. It addressed listening, communicating some of the things you identify here. I purchased the materials at $69 a piece. So everybody got a real professionally done workbook and all the materials in there, all the worksheets and exercises we were going to do. And then I had a leader's guide that I used, but I purchased those at 49 or $69 rather, and then charged $469 for the participants. It was a 10 week program we went through that was well received. I did that in a lot of companies over a period of a couple years. Jacob says, Dan, when I graduated in 09, I took a job with the federal government due to lack of options. Unfortunately, federal employment has lived up to most of its stereotypes. I think and have been told I need to get out before I become damaged goods. 
The bad news is I bought a house in early 2010, and if I sell, I could probably take a five dollars to $10,000 loss, plus have to pay back the $8,000 tax credit. The government job is in a sparsely populated area, so to pursue my passion, I would almost definitely have to relocate. Is $8,000 worth moving on and avoiding becoming damaged goods? Well, Jacob, a, a couple questions. One is, you know, you, you paint yourself into a corner that I'm not sure is realistic. Why are you assuming you would take a five to $10,000 loss in your house? All right, let's start with that. Why is that? Don't, don't get caught up in the generalities in the market. I mean, if you've done a great job of putting in some unique landscaping or you put in a little patio or you build a little arbor in the backyard or you guys are really good with color selection on the interior rooms of the house, I mean, those are all things that may give you a $10,000 edge over other houses with the same square footage. So don't get caught up in the, the normal, the general do something that makes your house a little more appealing. I've done that lots of times. You know, moved into a house one time. I bought a house on a Saturday. Um, never went inside the house. There were renters inside and the utilities had been turned off for two months. So you can imagine how nasty the house was and the whole situation. But I bought that house, went in, we stripped out the carpet and redid the walls and the floors and redid the kitchen and pulled out all the landscaping and put in new landscaping. And the things that I'm mentioning, now this was a long time ago. So the things that I'm mentioning for the most part, I did myself. In fact, I did everything myself. Well, I didn't put down a new carpet. We had somebody come in and do that, but I um, remodeled the kitchen, put in a dishwasher and garbage disposal that had never been there, new countertops. And yeah, I did all that stuff myself. I still enjoy jumping in and doing stuff like that. But this was about, well, this is probably 20 years ago now that I think about it. But in doing that, then I put it right back on the market and uh, made $21,000 on top of all my expenses that I had on the house. Now it was in an area where that was probably top dollar for that little suburb, that little neighborhood. But I did some things that just made it appealing. Didn't do any big structural changes, but just cleaned it up, just made it cosmetically really appealing. So don't, don't get caught up in that assumption. Now, the other thing is, why would you have to relocate for your passion? Now, I don't know what that is. You didn't share what that is, but do you really have to relocate or is that something that you could develop and do there? I mean, I, this weekend I met a young guy who works out of his house and he works out of a very spectacular house. He's a stock analyst. I said, you gotta be kidding me. He says, yeah, I'm, you know, don't commute anywhere. I don't go anywhere. I just, you know, turn my computer on. I do my work there and he does some independent consulting and he's just knocked it out of the park apparently with what he's done. But there are so many things that can be done today that don't depend on geographic location. Be careful about assuming that you have to relocate, that you have to move. I mean, that is a big step for sure. If the above is true, if you feel like you're moving toward being damaged goods, then it's still worth it to move on. I mean, that, you, you have to do that. If you really feel like you're becoming, each day you're becoming more and more damaged goods because of where you are, man, that's too big of an emotional kind of a downer to stay there and continue doing it and thinking that you're um, doing the best work that you possibly can. You can't be the best person you want to be in that situation. But before you just 
dump your house and quit your job and hope something comes up, create a transition plan. Get really clear on what you're moving to, not just from. See, at the, the, the end of the day on this, if you decide you do need to move from where you are to a new place, but you see clearly that you're going to go from making $60,000 a year to making 120, then the $10,000 loss in a house or $8,000 in tax credit you have to repay because you sold your house too quick become pretty insignificant. So don't let those things hold you back from moving to a place where you know you're going to be a better you and you open the door, remove the ceiling financially. Joanna says, I have an idea that I want to make money with, but I don't know how to start. I don't know the first thing about business or marketing or anything like that. Where do I get started? Well, there's some simple principles, Joanna, you can use. Find someone who's already doing what you want to do and model their behavior. I mean, that's the easiest, quickest way to move to a higher level of success. That is the foundation of so many motivational programs out there. Just find somebody who's already doing what you want to do. I mean, that's the essence of Tony Robbins principles where he's made bazillions of dollars over the last few years. Model somebody's success. That's what you do. That's the basis of his program. Brian Tracy said one of the hallmark characteristics of really successful people is that they spend time around people who are already performing at the level which they want to perform. You can do the same. So find somebody already doing what you want to do. Model their behavior. Look for workshops in your area. The SBDC, the Small Business Development Center, nearly any town is going to have something like that. They're often connected with the university. Look for that and the programs that they're offering. They're usually free. SCORE is another organization through the Small Business Administration. SCORE is an acronym for Service Corps of Retired Executives. They're business people who are now retired who are willing to help young people figure out how to do, how to put legs in their ideas. I mean, universities, chambers of commerce. I mean, here in Nashville, golly, we're blessed to have the Nashville Entrepreneur Center. I mean, where they have all kinds of programs to help somebody develop a business idea. But create a plan, but this is very doable. If you really get aggressive about that, read a couple good books, go to a couple workshops, you know, you'll be searching online. In 30 days, you can know more about starting and running a business than 98% of the people on the face of the earth. So it's not a, you don't have to go back and get an MBA, you know, just, just dig in, open your eyes to the resources that are right around you. And you really can learn how to start a business and make money. This comes from Scott who says, Dan, I'm wondering if I can get your opinion regarding my ebook. Now what he's doing, it's a lengthy email, but he's going to roll out the unofficial guide to motivation in a short abridged edition that is free and then a longer version, which will be available for purchase. So going to release the short abridged edition and asking about how much information he should require from people. And I agree, Scott, don't ask a lot. Don't make a lot of obligations in advance. Now, let me comment on that real quickly too, because I did go look at your unofficial guide to motivation. Love what you're doing. Love the cover and all of that. I would I would kill the part in the front of your book about do's and don'ts of sharing that. Just let people share it. I mean, I I put tons of stuff out there. I don't put all those disclaimers about you can't do this. You can't give this to your uncle Harry, you know, and here's why it just, it's a, it's an obstacle and people will just decide, ah, heck with it. 
you know, they'll move through that too quickly and decide, nah, you know, I'm just not going to do it. You want them to share it. So make it really easy and remove the obstacles uh, even that you have there now. Now, do I think that um, this is a good idea to distribute a free ebook? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, one of the books I have on my iPhone right now is a free version of Do the Work. It's a brand new book by Stephen Pressfield. Stephen wrote um, The Art, The War of Art. I knew I was going to start wrong. You know, we, we know the old, you know, the old business book, The Art of War, but this is The War of Art. It's a phenomenal book about releasing your creativity, but he has a new book called Do the Work. It's available free as a, as a download, as a Kindle download. Well, that just gets out there and it seems counterintuitive to publishers. I think, well, why would we give it away? Then people aren't going to pay for it. Yeah. You know what? I guess I'm a good example. I got it free. I have it. You know, I have the free version. Just this morning, I went to Amazon and bought it because I like the book and now I want the real thing. It was a no brainer. It was an easy decision for me. That's what you'll find people doing. So yes, you're right on track with that. I, a couple months ago, put up Dan's 48 low-cost business ideas. Well, that's been a hot little topic. I mean, that was downloaded over 90,000 times, my web people tell me, in just a couple weeks. I was on Ramsey a couple times in there and Moody Radio out of Chicago. Anyway, it got a lot of press and downloaded over 90,000 times. What does that tell me? That tells me that's a hot topic. A lot of people want that. Now, we just have cleaned it up, made it available as a more professionalized free, uh, no, as a downloadable version or a physical copy, both of which are paid for. Now, the people who are on 48days.net can still access that as a free download. We have a lot of things that are available on 48days.net that are free to members there, and I'm delighted to do that. But we get it out there free, 90,000 people downloaded it, so that tells me it's a hot topic. Then we turn it into a real product, and people buy it every single day. Now, you also asked, Scott, about getting an ISBN. Uh, that's not a really a big deal. If you're going to have something as a downloadable ebook, you don't even need to worry about an ISBN. It's really a non-issue. You know, if you want to eventually get it over on Amazon and have it available places like that, yeah, you'll need an ISBN. But if you're going to just do your own marketing and get this out there and have people share it, an ISBN is kind of a non-issue. And to get an ISBN for one product is kind of complicated. You either have to pay $185 for one ISBN or $250 for 10, and they glamorize the getting one and say there's all these other things they're going to give you, none of which you need at all. So I encourage you to go ahead and, and get 10. But if you really want to just get some traction with your first product like this, just get it out there. You can always add an ISBN at some point, especially if it's an electronic book and you may decide you never need it. I've got lots of products out there that don't have ISBNs on them. It's just a non-issue. So uh, that implies that you want it to be in libraries and you're going to have people uh, research it online and they want to order it and go pick it up in Barnes and Noble. Well, for a lot of products that I do, those things aren't even factors. People get it from us. That's all I'm concerned about. So an ISBN you don't even need. D says, Dan, you seem to have an interest in people who are coming out of prison to get back into life and grow and prosper. 
I found this interesting organization called the Prison Entrepreneurship Program. They actually have business leaders go in and teach business principles and life skills much the same way you do. Yes, I am interested in that. It, it, it's funny, but uh, as we speak, I mean, there's, I'm, I'm, of course, at the sanctuary. I'm not at my house. My wife is not there, but there are two people at our house right now who are uh, recent inmates. They're, um, they're out at this point, but they're cleaning our house. They come every week and they clean our house. So yeah, we're very involved in helping people like that get a fresh start and just helping to remove some of the obstacles. I love the prison entrepreneurship program. Incidentally, thanks for reminding me and sending it along. Uh, There are other resources out there like Chuck Colson's prison fellowship. They have a lot of resources for people getting out of prison. TD Jakes, the Potter's house prison ministry, bunch of resources there. There are books like After Prison, How the Ex-Convict Can Find a Place to Live, Get Work, and Stay Straight. There was recently a job fair here in Nashville just a couple months ago for ex-convicts, job fair for ex-convicts. So, you know, they had companies there that are looking for people to hire. And believe me, there's a lot of good people, I mean, great workers coming out of prison that uh, any company should be proud to hire. But they had a job fair. They were expecting 100 people. They had over 3,000 people show up. I mean, it was a real phenomenon. Well, let me grab a couple more here. Andy, now Andy, boy, Andy Andy threw me a curveball here. You know, th- these kind of questions just keep coming up. These questions that mix our, our work and our theology. Um, Andy says, Dan, how would you interpret Proverbs 14.20 or Proverbs 19.4? Have you ever read this verse before? Is there anything you, anything to interpret? Andy comes from Goshen, Indiana. Well, Proverbs 14.20 in the King James Version says, The poor is hated even of his own neighbor, but the rich hath many friends. In the message, it says, An unlikely loser is shunned by all, but everyone loves a winner. Wow, pretty harsh. Now, Proverbs 19.4, it's um, same thought. It says, rich people are always finding new friends, but the poor cannot keep the few they have. Or in the NIV, it says, wealth attracts many friends, but even the closest friend of the poor person deserts them. Now, the, the commentaries go all over the board on this, Andy. I mean, what does that mean? The poor is hated by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. Well, some of the commentaries say this is not given, you know, as a, as approval. It's just a sad picture of human nature. It's just an observation of what really is. The poor is hated even of his own neighbor, but the rich hath many friends. But, you know, I think it's pretty easy to support looking at it in a way that, you know, the poor usually are a drain on other people. I mean, the poor usually do have discouraging reports about what's happened and what the future is likely to hold for them. Now, I know I'm on really thin ice theologically here, and you have every right to disagree with me vehemently. But, I mean, I have certainly found that to be true. I mean, it's people who are wealthy, who are optimistic, who see opportunities, who want to help others. So, yeah, you know, neighbors would like to hang around people who are, who have those kind of world views, those kind of people who are 
positive and encouraging and uplifting. Well, so I, I think there is a message here. I don't think it's unrealistic to say, you know what, I'd rather be in the group that is rich rather than the group that is poor. I don't think there's a lot of merit in being poor. Now, the Bible says the poor you'll always have with you, and I know, blah, 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 and that. Well, we certainly are going to see that. But I don't think there's anywhere in the Bible that it says the poor should hope to stay there. I mean, it's a that's an observation of fact as well. The poor will always have. But I think there's a whole lot of encouragement in the Bible to say, you know what? If you don't like to be poor, here are some things that will help you get out of that and move away from that. So I'm pretty comfortable saying, yeah, you know, that's going to be true. You know, the rich are going to have friends and the poor are going to have a hard time attracting people who want to spend time with them and hang around them. I don't think it's it's putting them down or diminishing them. But I think our, our offers to people who are poor down and out ought to be, okay, you know, let's look at ways to move you away from that position. If somebody is totally comfortable being poor and along that, you know, now, now again, there are people who choose to live very simply. They don't consider themselves poor. But if somebody is complaining about being poor, chances are really high. They're also talking about being discouraged and depressed and Things are bad. They're part of the ain't it awful club as well. Well, God, you know what? I'm I'm right out of time. Jeez, I hate to end with that one. I'll probably get blasted for my some of my perspective on that one. Got some other great questions here, but we are going to have to wrap up to stay in our timeline. Again, I encourage you to uh, get involved in 48days.net if you uh, have an idea that you're trying to develop. Let us know what it is. Share with others. Link arms with people who are on the same path. We'd be delighted to hear what your idea is there. Well, I hope you're having a great summer. We're trucking through summer. Boy, we're almost halfway through this year already. That means you should be 50% complete on the goals that you set out for this year. This is a great time to be identifying what you want to accomplish in 2012. I've got most of my things laid out already. Encourage you to do the same. Thanks for being part of this community where we are all finding or creating work that is fulfilling, meaningful, and profitable. Have a wonderful, spectacular, stellar week.